Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to the singer-songwriter Aeneas Mitchell and the director Rachel Chavkin, two of the leading creators behind the new musical Town, a folk rock opera that sets the story of Orpheus and Eurydice in a kind of Depression-era dreamscape of hard times, Town premiered in 2016 at Off-Broadway's New York Theatre Workshop, where early excitement over the show eventually caught fire online and made the cast recording a digital streaming success. That buzz has fueled further development of the show over a run in Edmonton, Alberta, and most recently at London's National Theatre, where the musical played in the fall. Soon Broadway audiences will get a chance to see what all the excitement is about when the show starts performances at the Walter Kerr Theatre, March 22nd. Hi, Anais and Rachel. Hi. Thanks for being Hi. here. Thanks for having us. Oh, yeah. So, Anais, let's talk a little bit uh, first about how you first conceived Hades Town. You tell a story about it that sounds to me a little bit like divine inspiration. Tell me a little bit about that moment and when that was. Oh, that's funny. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, oftentimes, you know, I'm a songwriter and. Um, Oftentimes the impetus for a song isn't like, it's not like I have a grand scheme about what I want to do, just a line will come. And then I'll kind of follow it into the labyrinth. And there's a moment I was, um, I was driving in my car, I was in my early 20s, and I was, um, I was thinking about my boyfriend at home, and I was driving for miles, and, um, were you lines. touring? Like, were you touring as a musician yeah, at that point? Yeah, and yeah. early on, just playing yeah. coffee houses and sure. like driving ridiculous distances to get to you know a tips gig sure, <laughs> type of right. thing. Um, so these lines came into my head, and they were the melody of um, what is now the song called "Wait for Me," but the lyrics were different, and they went. Um, well, they went, wait for me, I'm coming in my garters and pearls. With what melody did you barter me from the wicked underworld? Whoa. Yeah, I, did I never I tell you I know that? those alternate lyrics. I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> wait, why? So all those words came at once in a rush? To expi- that, that's what sounds like divine inspiration to me is for, like... Yeah, I don't know. To you know, it's not it's formed, not you know? how I roll. Like I am a very slow writer, and yeah. I it's certainly like that kind of fully formed thing doesn't seem like the norm for me. But mm. then there are times when that happens, and right. and those four lines came all at the same time, and and they seem to be just about the Eurydice and Orpheus story because of the underworld, and yeah. um, so I started to think about it and just get really excited about the idea of telling a longer form story. Was that the first time you'd sort of had that impulse? Because um, you're not a musical theater person. No. Uh, I, I mean, you yeah. are now, but you were Apparently. not at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I do love uh, I do love music theater. I, I, I've always loved Les Mis, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Sweeney Todd made a big impression on me uh, early on. Um, but I think I, I was bumping up against this thing where I love songs so much, you know, and, uh, but even at my favorite songwriter's show, I would get, I'd start to get a little, like, fidgety halfway through because of the thing of just so many tiny climaxes in a row, and at the same time, I'd watch 
a terrible movie all the way to the end because I had to find out what would happen. And just wondering, you know, what, why is it so powerful, that question, of, like, what's going to happen and, and, and what would happen if you put, put all those songs in service of a, lo- of a longer arc. Right. And so when did that first idea happen? That was, like, 12 years ago, or that was um, what year was that? Yeah, that yeah, like? maybe even a little longer because okay, it yeah. was just the first spark of it. Okay, and that would, like, years ago. like, 2006-ish, is that yeah. the word thing? Maybe? Yeah. Okay, so... And then you think to yourself, I'd like to tell a larger story, and it's inspired by Orpheus and Eurydice. And then what does it become at first? Because I know this, it first existed as sort of a concert that you did with your friends, right? Like, was this like a concept album in your head? What was it? Yeah, you know, it was always a staged piece in my head. Like, um, early on, so I used to live in Vermont um, for most of my adult life, and... um, uh, when those songs started coming, I enlisted the help of like my friends in Vermont, um, uh, one of whom is still with us. Michael Chorney is one of our orchestrators, and he, um, from the very get-go, was arranging my songs for this band of his um, in Vermont. Um, there was an early director um, named Ben Matchstick, who came from the like bread and puppet world. Oh, yeah, um, which is up there. Yeah. It's way up there, yeah. totally. <laughs> and then um, all the actors and musicians were friends of ours in Vermont, and so um, we put on the show up there uh, two times in a row, two years in a row, uh, in, a, in a sort of more, much more abstract version of um, what we're doing now. And when did when did the impulse occur to you to you know delve further into sort of staging it and making it more of a musical kind of theater piece? Right. So after th- after that initial kind of staged thing, we um, I went into the mode of working on the album, which took a few years, and then we ended up touring that music as a concert for a couple years. So right. it, it really like took a break from the stage. Um, right. But I'd always wanted to get it back into the theater in some way, and um, uh, it just took a while to find the partners for that. And I'm sitting next to you, <laughs> the kind of keystone of of that next phase of of stage. Work. Yeah, and how did you two connect, Rachel? Talk about how uh, yeah. when you first came. We met in 2012 initially, actually. Aeneas came to see Comet when we were at Ars Nova. Um, I think maybe, re- like, you had begun working with So that would have been the very France earliest and, uh, production of Natasha Beyond the Great. That was the very that first was incarnation. In yeah, like, for folks who didn't see it? Yeah, 87 yeah. crushed yeah. seats and lots of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and Aeneas, you'd begun working with one of our producers at that point mm-hmm. and were like seeking out musical theater, so far as I understand it, yeah. and people working on it. And a mutual friend, actually a really great drummer, connected us, and we sort of began dating, basically, over the course of the year. And I think we like officially began working together in t- 2013 when I was in London, and we had like a five-hour Skype session, <laughs> uh, and just began talking through the concept album and sort of what was already there and what was happening and where there were gaps in songs, and it was like our first dramaturgical meeting, and of which we've now had a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what was already there? Like, what did you respond to in it that... Uh Oh, I mean, well, first and foremost, the music is just, like, heartbreaking. (laughs) It's so rich. It's so... um, uh, The orchestrations uh, that Michael Torney and then Todd Sikafus, who produced the album, uh, created, and Aeneas' melodies. We should say, this was the... In its first incarnation as an album, this was before the cast recording from the workshop. So this was the... I guess, let's call it the concept album, It's properly a concept album, yeah. And the... um, 
yeah, just the melodies of it. I mean, that song, Wait For Me, that Anais told yeah. the story of, is just hauntingly beautiful and immediately evoked a ton of images. And uh, and then I was so moved by the poetry as well, by the lyrics uh, and the philosophy in the lyrics and the delicacy of them. So I just fell in love with the music very purely uh, and then began really enjoying talking to Aeneas more and more. And so then how did you, the two of you together, conjure the world? It's set in a very sort of... I was about to say specific, but that's not quite the, quite the right word. But it has a very like specific texture to it, um, and it's not quite realist and you know not quite a dream. Um, How did you come to that? Was that in your head from the beginning, Anais? Or I think it's been a lot of trial and error on yes. the part of uh, you know the, these last few productions we've done. You should maybe talk about it because no, no, no. The trial yeah. and error is a good is a good thing. I mean, I think the the image that has really stuck with me that Anais had said at one point is like trying to focus a camera and. Um, that actually at at one we were trying to like dial it into focus and then at one point we actually over focused it and suddenly everything I should say the first thing Aeneas ever said to me when we were working on this piece is this is a poetry piece not a prose piece and so what that has meant has both that it rhymes certainly (laughs) like in its most basic form but also that it needs a gauziness of world so yeah there's like a bunch of different specific things that we're invoking including uh, there's obviously the trombone in the orchestrations and we looked uh, at like uh, research of preservation hall and talked about music spaces and the culture in uh, New New Orleans Orleans, yeah Um, really ex- extraordinary historic jazz base in particular, and like uh, looked at all these claustrophobic clubs for uh, gathering for old storytelling and for music, which is what Aeneas like breathes out of every fiber of her being, and that is what this piece is at its core um, is a music event, and so we wanted to make a space that could get really theatrical, and now it does. Like the number wait for me is this sort of massive spectacle but uh, but at its core it's also a really intimate space that is rooted in clubs right, right. Um, and, I, and I would just yeah. add like that yeah. I think you know when I first saw Great Comet at Ars Nova in that tiny space that's exactly what it, it felt like to me like a, the, the weirdest most awesome rock show and then also a totally delightful accessible story right. and um, and I think that you know one of the reasons I, mm-hmm. I uh, so admire and have gravitated towards Rachel's work is that she um, so deeply loves and gets what music is you know at, um, even though I don't play it yeah. <laughs> I know nothing about it actually <laughs> but I think like the idea I love being in a space with musicians it's my favorite thing and uh, and I think uh, I'm always interested in creating a world that a one wants to be inside both the performers but also the audience that you want to inhabit this space together. And then there was just something so ancient about what Aeneas was doing in this, in terms of both the myth and the ancient act of retelling a myth for your times. Right. The that first production at the workshop for any listeners who didn't see it had a very uh, it kind of in the round kind of con- concert feel to it. It was very highly staged, but it was like, you know, concerty. It was, yeah, it was yeah, a little yeah. bit like, and I guess what you were saying for uh, that first production of Great Comet. Um, what's, what will audiences see um, 
on Broadway because that's a you know the curves of the senior space. Um, it's pretty different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I hope that like what anyone who saw it at New York Theater Workshop, I hope is going to recognize the DNA spiritually in like a heartbeat. Um, we've talked a lot about like the vibe and that we actually lost the vibe for a moment of development and then worked to get it back in the design and the culture of the performance. Um, but also they're going to see and certainly new audiences to the show are going to see an enormous world that is this like starts as this claustrophobic uh, intimate I should say like really cozy club and then just opens out and opens out into this industrial world right yeah and so tell us a little bit about once once you figured out that it was about Orpheus and Eurydice and then you started digging in what did this story then become about for you? What made you, what did you find as you were sort of tugging at all those threads? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, well, I think from the get-go, you know, one of the draws of the story for me is that there's this protagonist who's a singer-songwriter, yeah. <laughs> musician, and, the you know, um, obviously the story has been told many times because I think composers are really drawn to that <laughs> that story. Um, but also the this idea of um, this young idealist who uh, crashes up against this world, the underworld, um, which in our um, telling is a sort of um, it's a it's something like a company town, or it's a it's a place of relative wealth and security that people have traded um, uh, a sense of aliveness uh, for a sense of certainty, um, and that just felt very rich twelve years ago, and it just continues. To unfold in different ways you know um, we're uh, we're dealing with an above ground world where the um, the seasons and the weather are unpredictable um, and that is you know the realm of Persephone the queen of the seasons and um, at some level it's attributable to this deteriorating marriage between she and Hades the king of the underworld who is the industrial um, industrialist uh, and you know one of the things that Hades is uh, one of his projects is he's walling off his <laughs> nation state um, from the so the poor people outside of it, and so those things, you know, obviously have taken on a whole new. I, I mean, that song in particular was very striking as the show was first performed at the workshop in I guess it was the spring of 2016, and we were sort of in the height or depths of the presidential uh, election mm-hmm. campaign then. And it, what was that like to sort of see that, feel that resonance in a way? Yeah, I, that must have been surprising. I imagine so weird, <laughs> so weird because right, and that song is one of the first ones that I wrote for the show, and and that's one of those rare moments where it kind of tumbled out, oh. and I didn't even know quite what it was, and um, uh, I've been singing it in my shows for you know literally a decade, and then suddenly it was people were just responding in a, in a really different way. I had thought maybe it would go away after the <laughs> campaign, but um, apparently not. No. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And what I know that it sounds like there's been a fair amount of development in terms of what the what even the score is. And there's been, you know, additions in songs and additions in kind of uh, oh, chorus. Yeah. I know I've talked to you both about. Um, tell us a little bit about sort of the development of what the show has become and how it has uh, kind of expanded out. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the ensemble is a big th- is a big one, and that was something that we began talking about before New York Theatre Workshop, um, but didn't have the money or the space <laughs> to right. put them. And um, and I think what the ad- addition of the Workers' Chorus, as they're called, has has done is both it's it's widened the scope of the show in terms of like the the joy like they're just this extraordinary group of of dancer singers and so getting to add all those both voices and bodies has just really enriched the life of the show but then also it's radically um sort of exponentially deepened the love story at the center because of course the the center central event is Orpheus comes down to the underworld to try to bring his his lover back to the surface with him and to change the laws of space and time uh, to do so. Uh, and one of the things that a, a dear friend said after the workshop is, um, I get what that walk, what Orpheus and Eurydice's walk means for Eurydice. It means she gets out. But what does it mean for Hadestown? And so now with the addition of the workers' ensemble, the political like undertones of what happens when someone whether they were born to do so or not and I think actually our Orpheus we've worked really hard to make him not a natural leader but actually someone who is forged in like the crucible of losing his lover Um, that uh, when someone dares to step out and speak truth to power and, and ask the question why do things have to be this way that that can change the world not just for for the love of his life, but also everyone who's living under these uh, oppressive conditions. So I think that's probably the biggest spiritual and logistical change to the show from my perspective. I love that, what you just said. <laughs> I'm sorry, it made so much sense to me. I'm like, oh, that show makes sense like that. I, I will say that like, um, I think people that saw the show at the workshop are going to experience, like Rachel said, the same DNA, the same culture, but a really different show, like a pretty radically different show. And and there's been a lot of work in terms of, you know, and me coming from the, not from music theater world, not from the dramatic writing world, um, it's been a long sort of master class working with Rachel and our dramaturg Ken, Chernelia, and, and the theaters that we've worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember early on at the workshop, um, Jim Nicola, the artistic director there, I was sitting in his office, and he was like, so poetry is, you know, he was eating a sandwich. <laughs> and he was like, poetry is, I'm standing outside, I'm standing next to my sandwich, I'm looking at it, and I'm expounding on the beauty of this sandwich. Drama is, I'm actually eating this sandwich right now in front of you, you know. And for me as a songwriter, oftentimes, you know, the songs are, they they are a suspension of a moment. They are sort of like, let's dwell in this this mystical space for three and a half minutes where drama demands that you you know are in real time you know having experiences making change you know making decisions a leads to b that kind of stuff and so i think a lot of the work of the past few years has been to try to go into these worlds which exist these three and a half minute worlds which do exist as a sort of suspension of reality and and get into them, you know, what are the stakes and what is the journey from A to B. So there, there are going to be a lot of those moments, I think, that people, people who are asked to be pretty patient at the workshop with just, like, being with the music, hopefully there will be more for their, their dramatic uh, mind to follow. And so are there 
a lot of new songs, or are there? Is it more just sort of reconfiguration of songs or rethinking of songs? Yeah, I would say more the latter. That it's it has always felt like the show was co- sort of at capacity for you know mm-hmm. how many musical themes uh, right. you know, and we're trying to like streamline it and condense it and stuff but but to make those songs that exist work harder on behalf of the storytelling has been the project and and so sometimes that's um a recit you know interlude in the middle of the song or an or an intro or an outro or a bridge um where we can be in the moment uh moment to moment what do you each consider sort of the biggest things you have learned in the journey from the workshop to you? You played Edmonton, um, which first of all, how did you get to Edmonton? Um, and then you were just in the you were just at the national. What are the what are the biggest takeaways that kind of helped? Rachel, as you said, kind of focus the lens. Yeah, yeah. Um, Don't all Broadway shows go to Edmonton? I, I mean, <laughs> like New Haven, classic, Chicago. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was very cold there. Um, and they were very good to us. It was wonderful. I mean, I think actually, I guess I would point to that moment as actually the biggest learning experience for me. Um, and it was really hard. Like, I was um, spontaneously weeping at um, all hours of the day because I was like, oh, we've, I, I, and I felt I have killed it. Like, we actually have killed this thing. And I should say, I've never, ever worked on a show as hard to direct as this show. I've never worked on something as delicate. And I think for all the reasons, like, implied in the thing Aeneas was just talking about, like, you come to this world of music theater, musical theater, as, like, both a, a worshiper and also as, like, an alien. And so that the... Um, and so the songs, the writing is just unique. It, it is so singular in terms of the way music functions and the, the like gossamer of the world is spun um, through every lyric and every melody. And, um, and so how the show has wanted to inhabit space and, and whether it wants to become a quote-unquote representational musical with like real railroad tracks for example versus staying as a concert with microphones um it what has slowly become clear is it didn't want to be either of those things like it felt like a betrayal of theater to not take the leap into like seeing these scenes in full um which was not a step we really were ready to take at new york theater workshop but in canada we learned the really hard lesson of going too far into realism and so suddenly the event had lost its spirit and uh and so with our set designer rachel hawks um, beautiful blessing between previews one and previews two I actually cut three quarters of the act one set and suddenly it was like oh my god the whole thing blossomed back to life and the actors remembered everything from a four hour rehearsal because as soon as we retapped into the the vibe of share of community of sharing space to tell a story it was like oh this was always what it was meant to be and when a choice is the right choice typically it's actually pretty easy to execute so that was a really painful lesson but a really good lesson that then has guided every step following that time mm-hmm. yeah it was also I'll just talk about the national real fast because yeah. that you know we just came out of that production and um it was like such an incredible space to be developing this show uh, en route to Broadway because it's so different, yeah. <laughs> you know. And um, 
it felt I mean it's it it's it's a Greek space and and it felt so classical like the whole vibe was you know it, it's it's made for Shakespeare it's made for you know this really old storytelling and um, like uh, like Patrick Page our Hades you know yep. he somehow he is the Shakespearean like expert like he you know suddenly it felt that our kind of I don't I don't want to say scrappy but you know like we were this like folk show like came from this barn <laughs> or whatever was suddenly on this Shakespearean level and and all of the feedback we were getting you know Rufus the artistic director there yeah. is just like such a dear man and so intelligent and his instinct would be like let's not put a button on the end of it let's have fewer buttons in this show you know let's, let's go for less applause because we want to stay in the which is r- potentially the opposite of what most shows on Broadway would be going for. Right. Um, so it did feel like really connecting with just like this old school integrity of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we should actually talk a little bit about the cast you mentioned, Patrick, who's been Patrick Page, who's uh, people have seen on Broadway in a thousand things, from yeah. Spider-Man to um, you know, The Lion King. So he's your Hades, and he's been with the project basically from the very early on, since before the workshop, right? Yeah, totally. Amber Gray. Yeah, and Grace. Amber Gray has been with the project almost as long as I have. She was oh, in the yeah. very first development workshop we did uh, at Dartmouth College with NYTW. Oh, okay. And so she and she is uh, Persephone, and she uh, was she in is Great Persephone. Comet. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's had two babies since she started working on this project, I'm told. Uh, yeah, so, so true. Amazing. Right? <laughs> and so, wh- and I guess, what do, you, do you find it hard or do you enjoy uh, writing for other people as opposed to yourself? Were you always writing these songs with the idea that other voices would sing them? I love writing them for other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and at this point, there's not that many songs I can sing from the show because I feel, <laughs> you know, I feel like they... And I've learned so much from all the actors we've worked with along the way yeah. um, in every production. Um, and I certainly feel like our five principal yeah. actors now are... They are so close DNA-wise to who their character is that I almost can just picture them, you know, picture them and then the language comes. It's a re- I feel like you have gotten, particularly in the, even the last couple of months, like really beginning, the like singular joy of a musical theater writer to write for a particular performer, which I recognize as like a, a lot of playwrights as well do, where they're, they, they, once they picture the right person in their brain, everything begins to blossom. And so like Andre De Shields has taught us so much mm-hmm. about the character of Hermes. He joined the cast for the National. Yes, yeah, and had done a, a bit of development with us prior to that. And there was one like moment during a workshop when Andre just at the end sort of very lightly said, what is doubt? And it like <laughs> ended up leading to this massive revision yeah. of the song Doubt, right. which is um, which is the climactic sequence in the show. Yeah. And then he can throw down the wisdom, you know, in a dramaturgical <laughs> discussion. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. Totally. Um, and then Eva uh, Noblezada and Reeve Carney, who they are, are the two, two. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. You're no, no, no. There are two forth. young lovers, yeah. uh, Eurydice and Orpheus, and like the two of them are so um, like this bundle of toughness and sweetness Mm -hmm. between and I think in particular I'm thinking about Aeneas has done a a number of revisions on the character of Orpheus recently actually that's been a bunch of the focus of the work between the National and here and a lot of that is thinking about 
um, how I think Reeve inhabits the world as um, this uh, incredibly touched musician, and mm-hmm. and that word is now sort of a big hallmark in the mm-hmm. in the piece. I hope it's okay. Yeah, to totally. say. Yeah. yeah, and it felt it it felt like that was the direction that that character always wanted to go. Well, it's been easy. Like we did did a ton of staging yesterday through the early uh, part of Act One, and it's like so. Um, thrilling, and again, it's it's suddenly when something ha- comes naturally and easily, you're like, oh, that that was the choice all along. Yeah, yeah. We we often talk about this show, like you know, there's so much work has gone into it, so much kind of generative, like creative work on the part of so many people, and at the same time, because it's a myth, it's it also feels like it just is like coming out of the ground, you know, or that we're, or we talk about like the sculpture in the stone where we're just like chipping away and, and maybe it's a costume piece and we're like, oh, that scarf, that's the sculpture in the stone, you know, or the, some choreography move or, um, there, there is the sort of thrill of, um, resonance when you tap into that just very deep, um, aspect of mythology. One of the things that has kept kind of enthusiasm for the show going, even though it was only, you know, it was on for a few months at a little off-Broadway house that not that many people got a chance to see just because it's a small space. But then uh, you made a cast recording that uh, kind of blew up online. It became really popular and people uh, really responded to it. What did that, how do you feel like that translated uh, for you, you know, IRL? Like, did this sort of digital enthusiasm kind of bleed over into how you guys experienced how hmm. people responded to the show. My, I guess I would say, and I'm, I'm sure you have a more specific relationship to this, but like my experience of this show first and foremost was this concept album that had a cult following, right. and Already, then yeah. like I got attacked by half of my students because I was teaching at the time when I and when I began to work on this because they were like, oh my god, they were just acolytes of the album, and then so it felt very natural that the cast album had exactly sort of the same feeling, and and that was the. Um, um, the central idea of of doing it as a live recording versus a studio recording, um, it, it felt like a bootleg in the way that you're just like, I can remember f- listening to bootleg cassettes as a kid and feeling like, oh my God, I have this in my hot little hands. And maybe other people have, you know, a copy of this cassette, but this one's mine. And so... So I think it, it made, it just felt very um, in step with the history of the show that the, con- that the cast album had that same sort of special vibe. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's well said. I, I, um, I remember being uncertain whether we should make a recording of that mm-hmm. show because um, there was this studio record and because and we were still d- developing it. And, you know, um, but the, when we hit upon making it a live record, it felt like it all came into focus and um, I'm so grateful that we have that document of that time because not many off-Broadway shows get it actually we should say Um, that's right yeah yeah yeah, we're so lucky that that we were supported by um, the record label by Warner and that the producers thought to throw down and make it happen because but it was a special time and a special group of humans in that room and I'm so glad that we have a document of that Um, and and I mean I just think that's the beauty and the power of music and writing songs is that they then they walk on their own legs in the world you know Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that uh, it's just beautiful that as many problems as I have with like this world of 
file sharing that we live in or whatever, you know, everything's free now. Um, but I love that music is free and accessible to people and they can find music that moves them and share it. It's like, makes a lot of sense. Are you excited to write another musical theater piece? <laughs> <laughs> um, like someday, <laughs> you know. But not for a while. Is that the? Is that the? Yeah, the I'm, I'm excited to make some music that has no dramaturgical implications <laughs> at all. <laughs> that you won't have to have five meetings about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're each song. Yeah. Now I've been working on this project. This it's a new. Um, it's a new sort of folk band. It's called Bonnie Light Horseman, and it's um, it's all sort of reworked in a kind of vibey, uh, loose way, traditional material. And it's with a couple other great musicians, and and that has been a sort of um, like a a place of rest and just be able to just sing and enjoy music without thinking too hard about the you know what each word means um but it's been you know the thrill and honor of a lifetime to work with you rachel and uh, our whole team um i'm I'm so proud of what we're creating still and um i I can't imagine that i would turn my back on that world you know so who knows hopefully life is long yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and what's next for you Rachel Uh, after this like basically the day after Hadestown locks I start rehearsals for Bess Wool's continuity at MTC um, which is a really funny and very upsetting play about climate change set on the set of a climate change action thriller (laughs) <laughs> uh, and of course Bess and I made small mouth sounds together so yes, that's, it's yes. another kind of ho- home based collaboration right. for me oh. yeah I can't wait to see what comes next for both of you uh, thanks guys thanks for being here thanks we'll talk you. to you That was Anais Mitchell and Rachel Chavkin, two of the creative forces behind Hadestown, starting Broadway previews March 22nd. If you like what you've heard on this and other episodes of StageCraft, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe wherever finer podcasts are dispensed. On the next episode of StageCraft, I'll talk to Eva Price, the rising young producer behind the Broadway runs of the edgy new revival of Oklahoma and the upcoming Alanis Morissette musical, Jagged Little Pill. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.